Hello everybody, I'm your host Nazarbina and this is the Omnichannel podcast brought to you by Omnichannel X, where we interview leading minds in content design, governance and systems from around the world. If you like this episode, remember to like and subscribe on whatever channel you're using and check out omnichannelx.digital for more info on our annual conference, blog and mailing list for exclusive offers and content. Now enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Nazar Bina. I am the program director for OmniX and uh, interviewer here on the Omni Channel X uh, podcast. Um, for frequent listeners, we are picking the podcast back up again uh, after after a little hiatus during the the pandemic times. So glad to have you back. I'm here today with uh, David Dylan Thomas, who is the author of Design for Cognitive Bias, published by A Book Apart. So I'm particularly excited about this interview because um, those of you who know me will know I've been a, a you know a cognitive content um, fan um, for 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 many years. Um, I'm, I've I've devoured and enjoyed books like Predictably Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, Thinking Fast and Slow by Michael Kahneman, and uh, and various others related to this topic. And and I think it's really you really, 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 really useful um, background for anyone who is uh, who is writing, uh, modeling, um, planning, or, or designing um, in the content or the experience space. So I'm 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 very happy to see another book that's specifically aimed at uh, at design um, coming into this space because the others are general you know, cognitive science books, but this is one for us and our community. So I'm I'm very excited about that. So. Um, Dave, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your background, what you do, sure. and a little bit about the company you work for? Yes, yeah, sure. So I work for a company called Think Company. It's an experience design firm, and I'm what you call a content strategy advocate there, which is largely around uh, sort of business development, getting people excited about the content strategy work we do, uh, but also includes things like inclusive design workshops or inclusive content strategy workshops we're starting to roll out uh, very much actually based on the book. So I spend part of my time, you know, going out and promoting the book and, and, and talking about it. And part of my time kind of like, you know, drumming up interest in the company and telling people what we're able to do, uh, especially in terms of content strategy, but, you know, more broadly around all the different facets of experience design. Is the book more for the content folks or the design folks, or do you think it's it's adequate for both, even split? Yeah, it's so it's called Design for Cognitive Bias, but uh, truthfully, like the definition of design it uses is very much anybody whose job it is is to help other people make decisions, right? So designers might do that through design content strategists, through their work, UX professionals, project managers. Like I found you know, that I've gotten a great reception from folks, no matter what line of work they're in, they found it to be very accessible and very applicable. When I go out and give workshops, I have, you know, marketers in the room, product designers in the room, project managers in the room, um, you know, CE, uh, VPs of, you know, product in the room. So it's, it's a very, it's a very expansive thing. Cause at the end of the day, all I'm really talking about in the book is uh, how to challenge our own assumptions, right? And how mm -hmm. our users' assumptions can sometimes get them into trouble and what we can do about that, how our stakeholders' biases and assumptions can like make our life more difficult maybe and how we can, what we can do about that. But then uh, really most importantly, you know, how our own assumptions that we don't even realize we're making can you know, potentially be harmful for our users and what we can do about that. So basically, if you make assumptions, this book is for you. <laughs> <laughs> so a very broad audience. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, 
So how did you, so you're, you're, you know, you're saying you're doing the, the workshops, you, you kind of talk about the subject. Um, how did you kind of get led to put it into book form? What, what sure. drove you in that so, direction? Yeah, yeah. It's funny too, because I never really started out intending to write a book, but um, really it started when I saw a talk by Iris Bonnet called um, uh, Gender Equality by Design. Uh, she gave it at South by Southwest a few years ago. And you, you, can, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's a fantastic talk. But one of the core ideas she was talking about was this idea that a lot of implicit bias um, whether it's gender bias or racial bias, can come back to something as simple as pattern recognition, where mm. maybe you've seen a pattern your whole life that, you know, this is what a web developer looks like, and it's a skinny white dude, and that pattern came from movies or television or offices you worked in. Um, and it's not that you genuinely believe that men are better at programming than women, but when you see the name at the top of a resume that doesn't fit the pattern that you're used to, mm -hmm. you might start to give that resume the side eye, right? Mm -hmm. So seeing that something as terrible as bias could uh, come back to something as simple, dare I say human as um, pattern recognition, I decided I need to learn everything I possibly can about cognitive bias. And so I literally took one bias a day, learned about it, moved on to the next one the next day, which turned me into the guy who wouldn't shut up about cognitive bias. So eventually my friends were like, Dave, please just get a podcast. So, <laughs> so for a while I was doing this uh, podcast called the Cognitive Bias Podcast, which I've actually resurrected recently. And um, that kind of combined with my you know, day job of doing content strategy and UX work. Uh, and I started to merge those two, especially when the city of, Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia asked me to come on an accessibility panel to talk about bias. It kind of forced me to put together a few minutes of uh, content around here's this particular design pattern and here's this particular bias that is influenced by it that eventually turned into a talk that I started giving around the world. And eventually someone from a book apart saw that talk and said, Hey, would you like to write a book? Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Cool. So when you, when you say that you, what you learned about a bias a day, um, like what was, what was kind of a little bit about your research methodology? How did you go seek out the, the evidence or the examples to, to feed a, bio, a book like this? Sure. So I literally went to the rational wiki page. That's just a list of cognitive biases and just a little brief explanation. And I would literally just take the bias, Google it, find some good content on it and just sort of learn about it. And eventually that became the fodder for the podcast where the podcast is mostly me focusing on one, you know, bias per episode for like five, 10 minutes. And I would just sort of refresh my memory of like, okay, what, what was that thing about? Make some show notes and record the podcast. Uh, but it, it was literally just here, let me find out what I can, you know, on the internet about yeah. this particular bias, um, you know, what studies are related to it, you know, um, and then kind of, you know, contextualize that and then kind of move on to the next one. It was remarkably straightforward. <laughs> well, I think, well, that's the, that takes me straight to the topic of structure, because it seems mm. like you had a very, a good recipe for how to approach the topic. Um, and and uh, does that play out in the book or do you, know, do you take it a bias at a time? Yeah, it's interesting. The structure for the book really came, it was one of those moments of inspiration where I was trying to put together the book proposal. And as part of the proposal, I was going to submit a sample chapter, which was going to be the introduction. And um, I remember I was walking from, we had, um, uh, at the time we really had two different offices in Philly at Think Company. I was literally walking from one to the other, they're just a few blocks apart. And on my walk, it just sort of all hit me at once. And I think it was really around the idea that, um, I think this is somewhere in the instruction, the phrase like design, this is a book about people because design is about people and we design mm -hmm. with people, we design mm -hmm. for people and we are people. Mm -hmm. And that paradigm really 
made me realize, okay, first I want to talk about user biases and, you know, how um, different content strategy and design influences that. Then I want to talk about stakeholder bias, right? So the people we work for and the people we work with, how does bias play into that? And then move one level in from that to, okay, what about our biases? Mm. So that's the structure of the book is user bias, stakeholder bias, our bias. And it gets increasingly personal, right? As you go through. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of builds to, by the time you're talking about our bias and mitigating that, you really end up having a conversation about design ethics. And that was sort of the aha moment for me is like, oh, this is actually a book about design ethics. Hmm. That's sort of like, you know, gotcha at the end. That's what it's really about. Well, I think uh, that's, a, yeah. I think it sounds like a great way of moving forward because the, the thing about biases, it's they're there, they are intimate and the, no one likes the finger put on their bias as it were. Um, so kind of moving from the outside in, uh, it sounds like a great way to get people to be able to eventually see their own biases once they kind of have understood the mechanisms and, and seen them in other people and uh, been able to access them. So I uh, well, access and accept them. So yeah, I really, I think that's a, that's a great way to structure it. Um, so who do you think, we said that kind of it's for anybody, but uh, um, who do you kind of anticipate probably picking the book up and what do you think will it, uh, it, it'll enable them to do better in their worker lives? I mean, my hope is that it, you know, changes hearts and minds and budgets. So, and I, and I put it that way because ultimately I'm hoping that the people who pick this up, that I think it's going to be most resonant with are going to be designers, content strategists, the people who are doing the work of building websites, building products, building apps, like, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, on the grounds, like literally the designer putting together the wireframe or the, the mock-up um, to the product manager or the project manager, who's like, you know, making decisions about how all these parts are going to fit together and how it's going to be released. Like that whole team, I see really being able to engage with the material in the book, because I am very directly talking about, um, processes or things they can add to their process to mitigate bias, right? So things like red team, blue team, where you bring in sort of a red team to come in after your blue team has kind of done most of the initial research and maybe gotten up to a wireframe stage. And before you go further, you bring in this whole other team to look at your work and sort of poke at it for potential bias, for potential harm, right? That's the sort of thing that a, a project team would work on, whether it's at a dedicated you know, client site or if it's an agency working with a client. Um, uh, that's the sort of folks I think are going to engage with this most directly and that I hope will be able to sort of say, okay, um, we see the value in this. We're actually going to make this a part of the budget when we estimate this project, right? Because the world we live in, if it isn't in the budget, it kind of doesn't exist. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I want to, I'd love to see like that kind of level of engagement of, oh, we actually started making this a part of our estimating now because we've read the book. Like that would be a big win in my book. Fantastic, fantastic. So you have that kind of concrete uh, uh, process recommendations where you're saying like, this is the typical design process and this is where bias is allowed to live and this is where we can go root it out. Exactly. And it's this idea that you're never going to be able to get rid of bias in the sense of like, you know, vacuum it out of your head or something. It's more of understanding, okay, if these are our biases and we all have them, how do we either create guardrails, right, to sort of mitigate them? Mm -hmm. Or how do we uh, bring in people with different biases, right? Not without bias, because everyone has it, but different, almost complementary biases where they're going to notice things that we don't notice because they have a different lived experience, right? Uh, and even better yet, how can we bring in people 
into the process who are going to be impacted by this thing we're building, but maybe don't have as much power as we do, right, in, in, in how this thing gets designed. Like that's, I'm making an argument for particip participatory design as well there um, on the grounds that you really need other perspectives to create a fair product and the perspectives you bring in, you know, most likely uh, are going to be the ones from people who are impacted by this thing. I think this is one of the most, not to flatter you too much, one of the most important topics in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's no, no pressure. I, 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 yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not being. I'm not being facetious because I think, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, that what we're kind of talking about is the kind of the core problem of society right now. That uh, we are, we have access to perspective in a way that we never have before through the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being connected to the entire planet, or uh, in, in a way or feeling, thinking we are connected to the entire planet when actually mm, kind of not, uh, mm -hmm. gives us this feeling that we're, you know, we, we've opened up our worlds, but it's having exactly the opposite of effect. So we're seeing uh, fences going up all over, all over the world, kind of psychological othering and grouping uh, and what was supposed to be a connecting, integrating force, well, the internet uh, has, has actually um, caused us to become more, more uh, I believe, caused us to become more polarized and able, in fact, able to find uh, clusters and um, groups, which we then identify with and, and then uh, and allowing us to have our biases reinforced. So um, is there is there kind of any trend watching or kind of that kind of a statistical analysis of, of, of how bias manifesting or what what is how it's how bias is showing itself in the world in general or in design or, or otherwise? Yeah, and I think I really get into that as I talk about sort of stakeholder bias because I think the reason, and I, and I was an early techno optimist, right? The, at the dawn of the web, I was like, yep. oh my God, this is going to connect everybody and folks yep. like me like my agenda was, I'm a filmmaker, and oh my God, the web's going to open up filmmaking to folks who don't have $100 million, right? Um, so I was totally on that train. Mm -hmm. And I think what, uh, what soured it or compromised it uh, was um, a very capitalist approach to how to fund the web. Like, how are we going to make, how are we going to pay for all of this stuff? Mm -hmm. And when we decided that a lot of it was going to get paid for with ads, that immediately put kind of guardrails on just how connected it could be. Because if we're going to support it with ads and we're going to hop on this kind of personalization train, it's actually better for me to keep you biased because it's easier to market to you if you're not changing your opinions all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. If, I can, if I can put you in a pigeonhole, put you in an echo chamber, it's way easier to market to you, right? So all of a sudden, the design, and that's one of the things I try to point out in the book is that the web isn't the way the web is because people are just polarized like by nature, uh, the web is the way the way it is because you make design choices that will lean into certain polarizing biases or not. And, and how you design the space has a huge influence on how collaborative that space is. That's a, a big chunk of chapter three is sort of really getting your head around. It isn't just endemic that people on social media are going to be mean. It's there are actually specific design choices you can make that will influence just how mean they are and just how nice they are, right? Like we're, we're, we're complex and design can bring out very different things in us. So I think that, and I do talk a bit about incentivization really at the organizational level. Like when you mm -hmm. see companies making weird choices and you're like, why? And it's like, well, think about how that, 
you know, CEO gets his bonus or how that product manager gets their bonus. Like if it's based on how many products they ship in a particular time period, all of a sudden they're like, I don't have time for research. Wonder why, right? Like understanding that the incentivization can actually have a huge impact on the final product. Again, it's part of it's part of that whole journey. So, um, so yeah, I, I do kind of do a fair bit of understanding, and, and I definitely talk about advertising in that section as well, um, around how um, we need to be very conscious of what is our goal with this thing we're creating, and then what are we actually measuring to say that it's successful? And is the thing we're measuring anywhere near a good indicator of the actual goal? Mm. Uh, that, that's all tied up together. Uh, but, but yes, the kind, of, the kind of analysis you're talking about, I try to do, especially in that, that middle chapter. Okay, so that really reminds me of a book, uh, Thinking in Systems by Danella Meadows. Mm, you know, I haven't heard of that one. one. No. I would check it out. I think you will yeah. love it. Um, and it has to do with the fact that these things are endemic in the architecture of a system. Mm. So if you establish a system where, for example, incentives are set up that way, then there will be natural uh, outcomes. So because the, it is inherent to the way that the system is structured. So even if you changed all of the actors in the system, that because the system is architected in that way, it will bring about those things. And I think you 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 mentioned a, 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 what I feel is a great misconception that uh, social media users are polarized or something like that, as opposed to the nature of social media polarizes us because of the way that that's the way that that system is architected. So you, I, I think that the, you you did expand it on it quite well, but I think that this this um, there are still a lot of people who are kind of going, well, it's those people on Twitter, uh, it's those people on Facebook or et cetera, as opposed to um, recognizing that there's something about the nature of the beast that once you engage with it, you will have corresponding reactions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pointing you in a certain direction. So I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example I talk about in the book is uh, V Taiwan. That's V as in Victor Taiwan, which is this amazing process for uh, political transformation that came about when students in Taiwan were protesting a change the government was going to implement that was going to give China more power over Taiwan, very similar to the protests that were going on in Hong Kong last year and still are. Mm -hmm. But instead of like, you know, throwing tear gas at the protesters, the Taiwanese government said, hey, let's work with you. In fact, let's take your leader and make you part of our cabinet and let's start working on a way to collaborate. And they came up with a process called V-Taiwan, which long story short, enables you to get a sampling of public opinion in a very non-polarizing way. In fact, a way mm. that's leveraged to create consensus. And there were two design choices that they made that really pushed that forward. So one is you would put out, let's say the issue is Uber. This was actually one of the first thing they, they tackled was ride sharing in Taiwan. It's the same oh, yeah. problem every, every city has with ride sharing, right? Um, so they uh, put out a, just a series of different opinions that would text to people and then post and it would be like, hey, for example, like it would be, a, I, I feel that, um, people who do like who drive ride-sharing cars should have a license to do that, right? And instead of there being a reply button, there was just yes, no, or pass, right? They removed that design element of the reply button and utterly changed how that conversation went. Because now if I wanted to troll you by giving some audacious response to get people angry, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Or if I wanted to post something, because you could submit your own opinions, if I wanted to post something just horrifying to get people enraged and get these enraged reactions, I couldn't, there's no reply button. All you can do is start to gather the, like how people feel about certain opinions. And then the other brilliant design choice was rather than tie opinions to individual identities, they sort of tied um, 
they created groups like Uber drivers and Uber passengers and taxi drivers and taxi passengers. And they would just tell you which uh, statements resonated most with different groups. Mm-hmm. And eventually- Who, who's would, you in this? Oh, oh so, so the, the, the person looking at this platform. Okay. It's, it's a platform called Poll, Polis, Poll.is. Okay. And um, so this is the, the user who looks at this platform is someone who is trying to get uh, yeah. a feel for public opinion. Exactly. So I, uh, the or, users or themselves, the ones contributing, or, or the ones contributing to it. Yeah, or the ones contributing. So like, hey, um, I said yes to this opinion. I'm curious how many other people said yes, right? Okay. Um, and what you would notice is you might start, so you might notice that like this opinion really only resonated with Uber drivers and this opinion really only resonated with taxi drivers. But wait, here's an opinion that, that resonated with two different groups. And eventually like four groups might merge into only two groups, Uber driver or people who like Uber and people who don't like Uber, right? Mm. And then you would start to notice opinions that resonate with both of those. And the, the trick was, if something's gonna resonate with a lot of people, it has to be fairly subtle. It has to be fairly nuanced. You can't just say something polarizing and get it to resonate with everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the way the system was designed incentivized um, nuanced Consensus. statements, right? You, exactly, it added friction to trolling and added mm-hmm. you know, ease to consensus. And again, it's the same internet. It's the same people. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you put those same people like in a Facebook group or in Congress, they just yell at each other. But when you gave them the tools to actually collaborate or find to seek consensus, they found it. And they ended up with a solution where they took the technology from Uber and put it in cabs, which, mm-hmm. which is what they actually ended up doing, which is a much more subtle solution than I think you'd get out of Twitter or Facebook or Congress, right? <laughs> but the, that's what I mean when I say that the way you design the, the playground that people are going to interact in has a huge influence on the kind of results you're going to get. Excellent. I was actually my, my next question was going to be about you know uh, favorite like a favorite anecdote like that, that that comes out in terms of how how design could be different. The other question is, do you have a uh, I don't know if the term favorite applies properly, but a, a bias that you like talking about most? I think the one it's funny whenever people ask that question because I, I I always leap to like well what I the the one I hate the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So favorite, uh, and it's, and favorite it's, in, it's, in it's bunny a, quotes. Bunny yeah, years. yeah. It's it's I think the one that people really, really deeply need to to understand or that I think it's the just world hypothesis, which just is world a, hypothesis. Can you yeah, it's yeah. so it's a bias where you basically think that the world is basically fine. Oh, everything just that as happens, injustice. just yeah, justice, yeah. So the, like right. that, that it is just that everything that happens, the world is fundamentally just, okay. and so and that everything that happens happens for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what it what it incentivizes is sort of blame the victim methodology, right? It it comes up with like basically it says that well, if somebody if something bad happens to somebody, it's their fault. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thinking that it encourages, which is. The reason it's a bias is because it, it makes it's easier to process. It's a much easier worldview to process than well, good things happen, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Like that's much more complex. That, that like literally takes more processing to think through that world and live mm-hmm. in that world. It's way easier to say, oh, that guy got COVID. Oh, he must be a bad person, or that person's poor. Oh, they must be lazy. Right? It's really mm-hmm. easy to sort of just like 
have it be that kind of a world mm-hmm. versus, you know, a world where, oh, no, a system is actually why that person is poor or a system is why that person stayed sick and got sick and, you know, can't pay their bills, right? That's a much harder world to live in and a much harder world to process, but so much, so much um, cruelty and so much casual cruelty, you know, comes out of that bias, which is why I hate it so much. And I think it's important to understand because it explains a lot of people doing things like voting against their self-interest, right? So there's uh, this, you know, ties into another thing called um, system justification bias. But, but but the idea is that we think that, for example, poor people vote for tax breaks for the rich because they think, oh, someday I'm going to be rich. So let me, you know, set that up for myself. But when they actually ask people the question, they have no illusions that they're ever going to be rich. Like, no, I'm never going to be rich. Are you kidding me? I know my, I know my station in life. I know what the, what the, what the deal is but they genuinely believe that rich people deserve good things. And I think people underestimate that when they think about voting behavior and all that stuff is that some people really and truly believe like in authoritarianism, they believe in hierarchy, they believe in stations, even if they're not in a good station. Mm. And again, that's an easier world to believe in and Mm -hmm. kind of just process than a world where like, I'm in the station and it's wrong and there's an entire system I'm gonna have to fight if I want to change my station, right? That's a, that's a much harder world to grapple yes. with and, and, and much more depressing, frankly, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, I think that there's, this, yeah. It's, there's so much there. So I'll come back to my saying this, this is the most important topic in the world right now um, because it has to do with, uh, I think if you, when you take, and I'm not gonna name bloated orange names, but if you take a strong man uh, authoritarian uh, kind of uh, proto prototype fascist kind of leader, and this could be a, you know uh, just uh, I'll, I'll stay away from North America like a like a like <laughs> Bolsonaro or sure. um, yeah, Duterte yeah. and so on. It's it's they're they're cookie cutters. Yeah, you know the puffed out chest, the leaning forward, the bravado, the the misogyny. They're they're such they are themselves a pattern uh and then there's this corresponding reaction they you know they're rich they're a leader they act uh they have all this swagger must be there must be something behind it there must be some reason that they're in this position and i'm not um and it can it just naturally uh, we fall into place uh behind we fall into these patterns so you know someone stands up and says i'm the smartest and you go well I would never dare stand up into a into a society full of people and say I was the smartest. So they must be the smartest. Um, I think that this is it's it's really interesting. It's actually I'm I'm delighted because the just world bias is is uh, I actually didn't know it by name. Um, I, I uh, but it is actually one of my kind of favorites as well. I'm I'm a right now one of my if I'm gonna get personal for a second. My one of my things I most concerned about is uh, the QAnon, QAnon movement. Oh, yeah. Q, and, you know, and QAnon, it, it, it's actually touched me. Like I have people in my in my life who are affected by it. And I think it ha- there's been this one-two punch of, of COVID and QAnon where people can't believe that uh, that this is happening. Because it, it has to do, uh, for me, with the idea that they they cannot in a just world 
accept that although we are human beings, although we've created all this stuff, although we, you know, we're, we're, we're masters of the planet, we're still just mammals. Um, and mammals sometimes get a virus and sometimes it goes through the population and it's very devastating. You know, it happens to, happens to zebras and elephants and dolphins and, and sea urchins happens to it happens to humans uh and we we cannot all of our technology and all of our achievements does not allow us to escape our um our our, our vulnerability and the just world in when you have a big enemy you have a hero mm-hmm. yeah and so the the when when we are in fear and in times like this in fear it it is it is a time where you can exploit the situation to position yourself as a hero and i think Anyone who has a who has a platform, who has an ability to design, who has an ability to communicate, has to be aware that you we are. It's like you found a wallet on the ground, and you have a choice. <laughs> you know, people in people in crisis are easy pickings if you yeah. choose to exploit their fear, um, and you choose to position yourself as uh, as that. Um, superhero, not just someone who can help, because maybe you are someone who can help and you you should help, but the 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 superhero bravado, um, nobody's smarter than me, you know, put all your faith here, kind of a approach that uh, certain kind of leaders and certain kind of brands will adopt in a in a situation like this. We all have to kind of be aware that uh, it's extra wrong right now. Well, that's my. That's kind of yeah. my, my own editorializing or, or perspective, but that the mechanics of bias make it extra easy to exploit this kind of situation. And so we, that's, we have to be aware of that. So I think that is kind of uh, one of my favorite biases as well, because it's so powerful and it leads people, can lead people to make such poor decisions. Yeah. And it's, you know, you know, what you say about like a, a population in crisis, I mean, one of the things in, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, predictably irrational and uh, thinking fast and slow, those are both huge influences on this book. But one of the things they have in common is this notion that when people are in a hurry, they make bad choices. Mm-hmm. When people are, when there is an urgency, right? I mean, a lot of what, um, you know, darker deceptive patterns uh, trade in is this notion of, I'm going to take advantage of your confusion to make you click on the wrong thing. Right. Mm. Uh, I, I want to rush you through this. And one of the things I talk about in the book actually is this idea of in design, we've been taught, especially in product design, we've been taught uh, that fast, the word fast, fri- fast. yeah, frictionless, right? That phrase, especially mm-hmm. like in the five years, it was huge. Like, I'm going to give you a frictionless experience. And it was seen as just an endemic good. And kind of one of the things I talk about in the book. I draw on like uh, Margaret Bloomstein, for example, who's great at talking about this, is that there are times when it is actually the right thing to do for your customer and for your brand, frankly, to slow you down. Because, uh, you know, even in an e-commerce flow, so, so she brings up a, 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 an example I, I point to around Patagonia, who um, is a you know, big believer in the environment. And, the outdoor equipment yeah, and clothing brand. Yeah, yeah. And, and they don't, they don't want you returning anything because you returning something will literally double the carbon footprint of whatever that object is, right? Not so that means also, also bad for business. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they um, they they actually slow down the buying process, right? Rather than Amazon, where it's like buy now, um, they slow down the process with really rich 
like physically big content that it takes a while to get through, <laughs> um, as well as buy flows that are kind of keep throwing in these little, are you sure? No, but are you sure? No, but are you sure? Which anyone who's kind of rushing, trying to rush you into a sale would be like, well, trip that out. <laughs> Show them the jacket and then put a buy button on the jacket and then just actually just autofill the buy button. Just can, can you do that? Right. Like, <laughs> And they're like, no, 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 no. I want you to be so sure before you click buy. Um, that I'm going to deliberately slow you down. That's one of the things that, you know, and that's what bias basically is. It's just thinking too damn fast. <laughs> that's really what it boils down to. So if I can slow down your thinking, the odds of you succumbing to a bias kind of lower. Yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, particularly Rational is, is one of my favorite books on this topic. And uh, one of my favorite examples of it was, so, oh, you know, see, I say that, and then I'm letting use this tidal wave of examples. They're so good to come <laughs> at me. But what was the one that I had in mind? Um, oh, yes. We talked at the beginning about pattern recognition, and I'm mm -hmm. going somewhere with this, and I'm mm -hmm. interested in your thoughts on it. Uh, pattern recognition. The favorite, my favorite example is uh, how if we can become this. So this, I'm segueing slightly from from the frictionless, but the familiarity. And I think that in the frictionless thing, they, we're trying to also breed that. So we move faster because we, you know, we know where everything is and we just kind mm -hmm. of move through this experience. Uh, so we're trying to create uh, an environment where where there is a immediate familiarity and we, we like that. And my favorite example in Predictably Irrational is where they were showing random uh, words in, I think that they were random series of either uh, Korean or Greek or some, it was a language Chinese, Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, think, I think it was Chinese, yeah. Chinese characters. And so there, this is some, uh, it's Harvard or some, uh, some, uh, American university, and they're printing a, a string of, of characters that most of the, tar most of the audience of this, uh, particular newspaper will not be able to read unintentionally. So, and so they're printing these strings of characters um, and they're printing them sometimes repeating and sometimes not. And they're very careful about how often they repeat a string of characters on the front page of this newspaper. And they just did that for an amount of time. And at the end of the, uh, the study, they asked the readers of the newspaper how they felt about those strings of characters. So imagine that you're, it's a word in a language. It's not, may not, may not even be a word. It's just a series of sh letter-like shapes to you. And all that there is separating one group of letters from another is how often you've seen it. And people liked the ones they had seen uh, more often, more, and were more inclined to believe that those things were positive. So that yeah, that it's... word meant something positive as opposed to the ones they had seen less often. And for me, that's such a pure distillation of everything we're talking about when you're talking about bias and it comes back to what you first said in the first thing about pattern recognition so it's for me it's 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 like the it's the 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 uncut cocaine of bias <laughs> you you've seen it more times and just that it already inclines you towards positivity and if you think about it, if you extrapolate that out to all these situations when you come to uh, uh design um, political systems, financial systems, capitalism, racism, uh, and so on and so on and so on. How, how enormous it is. Yeah. And it's, it's a, um, so I actually talk about that example in the book and it's, it's a, oh, called the, 
It's yeah, it's called the mere exposure effect. And I, and I also am a big fan of that, that, that study because it does show you how little it takes. And the context I bring that up in is uh, looking at resumes. So we, I do, I do a whole thing in the book about around anonymized resumes and why like they're you know necessary or what, what, what impact they can have on some of that pattern recognition. And I, I talk about how you know my company, Think Company, did a round of anonymized hiring. I think it was for a web development apprentice. And what they learned was that there were more things they needed to anonymize than they thought. Because they would get to things like not just the name or the, you know, age or whatever, what might be in there that might, you know, bias you, but even things like cities, well, so, so locations, but also companies you worked at, of course, because if it's like, oh, you worked at Facebook, you must be smart, right? That isn't necessarily so, or any more so than if you worked at a company I've never heard of before, Mm -hmm. that doesn't that the name of the company tells me nothing. And in fact, because I've heard of Facebook, even if I don't like Facebook, the fact that I've heard of Facebook before, I'm already liking that resume better now because there's more stuff on it I recognize or names of colleges. I love talking about seeing Harvard on a resume because initially you might think, oh, they went to Harvard, they must be smart. That must tell me something about what I'm gonna get when in fact, uh, both Barack Obama and George W. Bush went to Harvard, and you can't think of two more different different applicants for the same job. But that's the thing, right? So that's just how, that's why we need to be, you know, there's, there's a short-term and a long-term goal, but in the short term, we need to be very careful about what information, and again, this is another design thing, right? We think that design is the artful, you know, reveal of information when sometimes good design is oh, here's all the things I am simply not going to show you, <laughs> right? Oh, and how can I artfully remove things from the content that are actually not going to help you make your decision or actually going to hurt when you try to make your decision? So um, so I, we're, we only have a little bit of time left. I, so I, I have one last little thing I want to talk about, which I don't, I, I hope that no other interview is going to ask you about. Do you talk in the book about, about uh, at all about the... Uh, about the positive sides of of, hmm. of bias, about um, kind of the ha- the when it's good to build familiarity, when it's when it's uh, good to kind of when it is good to go frictionless. I I, I know as I, I talked, one of the reasons I invited you on the podcast is is and the reason I'm, I'm fascinated with this area is because as a content modeler, hmm. I'm developing systems in words effectively. I'm developing systems in language where you are trying to establish what are the familiar forms, what are the recognizable signposts and structures that we can give and that can be learned both by content creators um, and content consumers and also explain to uh, computers to make the whole thing come together in omnichannel. Like this is the omnichannel podcast. So I did you talk about where when uh, it's it's safe to build uh, a bias or build a pattern uh, and any kind of guidelines for for seeing dark versus light patterns. I mean, I think it's I think it is an inescapable decision whenever you make something. And what I mean by that is there's there's, there's no such thing as neutral design. There's no such thing as a neutral content model. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings are going to read meaning into anything you create. Uh, and if it, and if you create it uh, as a system, right, a repeatable structured content system, you're going to amplify that. So I, I talk mm-hmm. in the book about how um, the New York Times wouldn't let you use the word uh, Ms as an honorific until 1986, which meant that 
women were referred to in subsequent mentions as Miss last name or Mrs. last name. And the structure, right, that repeated pattern is that the most important thing to know about a woman is whether or not she's married, right? Mm -hmm. Now, they could just as easily have built a structure that only highlighted last names, right? Or, or just basically didn't make a big deal out of that, which would have then made it more neutral and may actually made more equality between how men's names are referred to and women's names are referred to, which very subtly, but very meaningfully would have started creating in people's minds a hierarchy or, or a flattening really, a non-hierarchy between mm -hmm. this is what a woman's name is and this is what a man's name is, right? Like all of those things, all of those little choices get scaled enormously when they be, become part of a content model. Um, I, one of the things, and this is more, I don't, I don't get to talk about this as much in the book. There's plenty of things in the book where I do point to, for example, we know that things that rhyme are more believable. So be very careful what you make rhyme. Right? <laughs> but, I, but I do want to talk about that content modeling thing in part because I'm just sort of a content modeling dork. I find it fascinating. Um, but uh, one of the things I, I sort of, when I give the talk about this stuff, I sort of get into this idea that in English, we, we, we don't really have a good way of making it mandatory that when I tell you something, I tell you how I know it. Like other, it's called evidentiality. Other languages like Turkish have this thing where I can't really? tell you. Yeah, so it's like literally a verb tense. So there's one verb tense for, I saw Bob go to the store. Um, somebody, a different one for somebody told me Bob went to the store. But the idea Fantastic. is I can't tell you Bob went to the store without also telling you how I know. Which right, because it's gonna be one of the other. Exactly. And you can imagine all the applications for English if we did have that in there. But, um, but I do talk about um, this idea that, well, what if, because we know that things, things that are easier to read or easier to process feel more believable and vice versa mm -hmm. if it's harder to read. So what if we made the stuff that isn't confirmed in a story just a little harder to read? People would actually have a harder time believing it. And that is the kind of thing that would literally be in a content model, right? You'd be writing an article and you'd have to check a box around, okay, what's the level of, of verification of this, of this thing you're typing? Mm -hmm. It's not, or, 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 you know, is this something you personally saw versus mm -hmm. like, imagine posting to Facebook and you have to check this thing. That's, I personally saw this. Somebody told me this. I read this on the internet. Like, imagine if that was a box you had to check before you posted something. Now, you could always lie if you wanted to, but yeah. I feel like most people are just inclined to do the easiest thing, which is the truth. Mm -hmm. And imagine then if the post shows up and, it, and you can see because of the font or because of the way it's written or because of how easy it is to read, oh no, the person who posts this actually saw this thing versus, you know, oh, they, they heard about it. They saw a, a post and they didn't read the article. They just saw the headline. Right. Like uh, but, that, that's the kind of thing that would be in a content model. And yeah. I, I thought it would be amazing to see that play out. <laughs> and it, well, it also you, uh, your, your first example of something like the New York Times, where, where uh, I really like that idea of based on the amount of evidence you have for a piece of content, you're, you, you, you're allowed to speak about it in a certain way, which is really what you're talking about. And mm -hmm. if and if this is conjecture, personal opinion or. Uh, multiply verified or uh, uh, variously verified fact, then you you know you are allowed to use different kind of ways of ways of writing. So, um, and uh, I, sorry, I'm geeking out in my head here. I, I love that too, you know. And and you know, in a lot of my models and a lot of you know, a lot of the models, not only my models, but because it's I'm building off of thinking that goes back 50 years, but d differentiating between uh, concepts and references mm. you know the, the the facts of a specific situation versus the idea and you know, how do you write about uh i've, I've talked about it in several workshops like if i'm trying to explain to you the idea of a water bottle 
or tell you about a water bottle. Mm. And we, you know, we make those kind of distinctions and it's incredibly powerful, uh, but that's, um, it builds patterns in the way that the writers create. And then what you're looking for is corresponding patterns in the way that the consumer consumes, because they understand, you know, when I see this kind of writing, this kind of titling, I know that I'm gonna, it's time to engage my learn a new idea part of my brain as opposed mm-hmm. to when I see it like this, then this is just going to be some facts. You know, I can look something up and check something, or does it have Bluetooth? Yes or no. Um, and that's, that's, it's a different part of the, the brain that you're kind of uh, kicking into gear. And that's, for me, that's the exciting part of really mastering and understanding the cognitive science aspect. So the fact that you're bringing those ideas and tools to the, to, to, to a wider audience, I'm very excited about yeah, I, I totally geek out on that too. And uh, time does not allow us to sort of dig into the how linguistics is literally about mm-hmm. how different languages tackle that exact problem of, are you talking about a water bottle? Are mm-hmm. you talking about this water bottle? Are you talking about water and containing it? Like, yeah, 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 I could yeah. geek out on that stuff all day. Okay, so I think, <laughs> I think we're going to have to have you back on the podcast uh, because, uh, yeah, I can, that's one of my favorite things too. And that's uh, content modeling is a whole other thing and mm-hmm. uh, essential to to your omni-channel strategy uh you you other things to check out and so uh first of all i want to i want to thank you so much uh dave for joining us today it's it's been awesome uh i i um i feel like i've made a new chat buddy and that we could go on for quite a while uh, uh but i wanted to tell our listeners other things to check out if you like this one in 2020 we had um a speaker uh, you know i because it came up while we were talking i didn't look up his name um but he uh, he works for the biggest uh, gambling company in uh, Australia. <laughs> so he uh, and he talks about how their company intentionally injects friction. You know, mm. you, ha- you can't just sign up and start gambling. And they do that for very specific ethical reasons um, uh, to make sure that their platform doesn't support addiction. Yeah. And I think it's a great case study about uh, about how you can do design in a responsible way and how a company had the choice between straight up capital gain, you know, profit and uh, an ethical design choice. And they, they took the right one. So that's a that's a that's a, a talk that you can see if you are if you have access to the 2020 uh, recordings. That's Paris Agarwal from Tabcorp Holdings. Um, and uh, his session is Overcoming Challenges of Large Enterprises to Embed Design Thinking Ways. Um, but I think that the, the TapCorp story, I think, is, is a particularly interesting example of this, where, where a company is, is making the right choices about bias. Um, this is a, a personally uh, fascinating topic for me. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Latin American, but North American. I'm brown, but only light brown. I'm LGBTQ, but not gay. And so, like, this is uh, for me one of the reasons that I, you know, I started on Channel X is because I think we need perspectives. We need to come together from different points of view um, designers, developers, uh, content people, content strategists, product owners, users. And the best experiences, the best products will, will be a product of our combined knowledge uh, and our blended experience. Thank you for contributing your experience uh, and your knowledge to the podcast. And I look forward to having you part of Omnichannel X in, in some way in the future. Oh, thanks so much. You had a great time. 
Thank you for listening. This has been the Omnichannel Podcast with Nas Urbina, founder of Urbina Consulting. Drop us a comment on our LinkedIn or Twitter and let us know what questions you'd like answered next time and who you'd like to hear interviewed. See you then.